Today's Dead Idea? Well, we're knee-deep in our series on the Viking Berserkers, and today we're revisiting the idea of the origin of the Berserker, and we're delving into the misty, hoary past of Indo-European initiatory cults and wolf warrior traditions, and, well, we're going to go deep down the rabbit hole into some of the wilder and crazier explanations. So buckle in, folks, it's going to be a bumpy ride. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Go berserk, and you'll give scholars their imagination. <laughs> <laughs> that really is creepy. <laughs> but wait, so what the hell was that song? <laughs> uh, so those of you who have seen any version of Willy Wonka might have recognized the song Pure Imagination. And why are we bringing this in? So this is, as far as I can tell, the story of the scholarship on berserkers. Every scholar who takes a look at this question of like, what exactly were these berserkers? They dive right into the world of their imagination and whatever their relevant field is, that's what they're definitely sure the berserkers did. If you're a physical, like medical doctor, you're sure it was clinical. If you're a psychologist, you're sure it was psychological. And there are all sorts of crazy theories. Does the psychologist correspond to like the grape pool? or like the chocolate goop. I think they're all going to get stuck in some kind of chocolate tube by uh-huh. the end of A this A glass episode. elevator? Perhaps? Absolutely, yeah. yeah definitely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, if that doesn't introduce it for you listeners, that <laughs> I don't know what will. So today's going to be a little bit wild and crazy. As you put it, Andre, we are going to start weird, get probable, and then go right back to weird. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah, so this, this entire, really what I want to get into, right, uh-huh. is we talked a lot about sort of like how berserkers were in Scandinavian culture, like what role they might have played. We talked a little bit about maybe where their origins were or what berserking was. But I want to I want to get into that. I want to find out what exactly did it mean to go berserk? Like what mm-hmm. was that? Mm-hmm. And also like where did they really come from? And it turns out there's a million theories. So we're going to go through some of the zanier ones, and we're going to try to get into the probable ones. But it's going to be a real you're going to get whiplash with the turns in this because it's going to go from just weird and then bizarre to like oh pretty believable and then back to bizarre. So Willy Wonka is going to be our through line for this. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay, exactly. All right, I'm I'm game for it. And we're also going to be splicing in some clips from Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, specifically the wondrous boat ride scene that's going to be a connecting theme throughout today's crazy ride. So folks, this is going to be Andre's baby this episode. He researched this. I don't actually know that much about this. No uh, one knows much about this. <laughs> <laughs> so Andre, take it away. Okay. So picture yourself in a Viking longship. I'm there. You're sailing up a river. Perhaps a river of chocolate. <laughs> okay. And up ahead is a tunnel. And you have heard that somewhere in the depths of that tunnel, you might find the origins and explanation of what a berserker is. Well, I'm rowing harder now. You're going to have to row pretty hard. Okay, so into the tunnel we go. Okay. There's no earthly way of knowing <laughs> which direction we are going. There's no knowing where we're rowing. Rowing. Or which way the river's flowing. Okay, so the first thing that I want to dive into here is, I just want to be very upfront with listeners, 
There are a lot of possible explanations for what Berserking was and what it came from. And so I just want to get them all out of the way, because most of them are... They have a couple good points of evidence in their favor, and then there's a whole lot of places where they just fall down. Okay. Can I roll for explanations on a random die table? There is, I should have prepared a random die table. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Right. So um, some of them are physical. Some of them are psychological. So first up, we'll do the physical ones. Okay. And the first of those is that they were on magic mushrooms. They okay. were just tripping balls. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, absolutely. These these red and white mushrooms, like a Smurf house or like a Mario mushroom mm-hmm. called fly agaric, which mm-hmm. is also known as Amnida muscaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is native to that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and people did use them for sort of shamanic, drug-induced shamanic trances in other cultures. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that Vikings chomped on these mushrooms. Uh, I like to picture them smoking them, but I don't think that's how you actually do mushrooms. I think you just eat them. Yeah, we just revealed how lame we had a little experience. You're wondering how edgy our teenagehood was. It's pretty low. I I think you shoot up mushrooms. (laughs) Do you pop mushrooms? I'm pretty sure, based on my extensive experience, (laughs) that you just run into the mushroom after it's come out of a question mark box, and then all the effects are immediate. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Just run toward it. That's that's the one. Yeah. So there's some points in favor of this. Um... The mushrooms can give you all these, like, kind of convulsive body movements that might resemble some of the stuff we here described. Mm. And they certainly give you an altered mind state. Maybe you'd be particularly ferocious or something. Um, But I've got some bad news for the Magic Mushroom Berserker fans out there. Mm -hmm. This was actually tried in what sounds to me like a a horribly unethical experiment. 1956, a, I believe, Swedish um, professor basically just took a bunch of prisoners... And made them get magic mushrooms. They did inject it there. They made like a concentrated like serum of the active ingredient in the magic mushrooms and Uh gave it in very doses, varying doses. Sure. So it was be controlled. Yeah. Exactly. And so what they found is like, yeah, if you give a high dose, you do get the physical symptoms, uh, flushed face, the physical twitching Uh that might match up with the berserking. The problem is you also get crippling nausea. And start vomiting. And you would not be in a situation where you could go to you a battle. Want, you don't want to fight like that. Exactly. Yeah. So the problem with it, like, we have a lot of examples of berserkers fighting uh-huh. or being ready to fight. And I think zero examples of them vomiting. <laughs> right. I mean, the one, actually, Egil does vomit when he drinks, like, 10 gallons of beer at once. Yeah, but that's not. I think not... there's an alternative. There's a confounding variable there. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to just nix the magic mushrooms. It's probably not likely. Next up, alcohol. Good old-fashioned alcohol. Who doesn't love to get drunk and just go on a fist-fighting frenzy, right? Mead. Yeah, mead. And specifically, they they think beer. Uh, They would have, because I think mead maybe just... Drinking that much would be like gross. I don't know why also they think beer expensive. I think I think beer was associated with warriors very strongly, so that makes ale sense. was their staple drink. Okay, there yeah. we go. Mm-hmm. So the idea is uh, these Viking berserkers they would get just they would just down tons and tons of ale, and then they would be in like a drunken rage for the battle. All right, I mean that's reasonable, but the thing is, as far as I can tell, every Viking warrior was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were all they all drank heavily. <laughs> right? So I don't know that that's a special thing. Like, one cast of warriors only knows the secret of drinking before battle. Also, doesn't your reaction time suffer terribly? That's probably your most important virtue on the battlefield? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I, I don't think you'd be a really capable warrior. No. Unless everybody is drunk, in which case you're just as good as the next guy, but again, it doesn't seem special. He's just a big sloppy mess on that. <laughs> Maybe that's the secret of the Viking Age. That's uh, how they kept their okay. kill count low. Okay, next. Right, next, um, epilepsy. <laughs> Next. Oh, this one's promising. This one's promising because it does produce frothing at the mouth. 
which is a berserker thing in some cases. Rare cases. It, in rare cases, yeah. Mm -hmm. It does produce the shaking, and it also, you have a difficult time speaking. You often pronounce unintelligible words during an epileptic seizure, which could come across as dog-like, animal-like noises, or howling. So that's the argument. Mm -hmm. um, Brandon, have you ever known anyone who gets epileptic seizures? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, not person. Not many years ago I did. I'm not close to anybody. Um, and it's a very difficult seizure to go through. I would posit that you cannot even pick up a sword and advance toward battle in that seizure, for most epileptics, yeah. let alone that you could then competently perform so well that you're considered elite yeah. in the battlefield. Yeah. So that also just gets a big thumbs down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next, we actually talked about this one briefly, Paget's disease. Uh, quick review, this is just a, a like a genetic disease that causes your the, skull to thicken. The thick skull thing. Yeah. yeah. And its main symptoms are that you are usually have a, a twisted or distorted uh, face appearance, mm -hmm. you have a big head, you have a very thick skull, you have headaches, and you oftentimes suffer deafness. Mm -hmm. um, but your skull would be really thick and hard to crack. Now that actually is a perfect description of exactly three berserkers, Egil, Egil's dad, and Egil's granddad. Mm -hmm. And all the other berserkers, I don't remember other references to them being twisted in appearance or having headaches or deafness. So it's just the Skywalker lineage. Exactly. <laughs> this is this. the most powerful berserkers of all yeah. have Paget's disease. <laughs> and I mean, I will say, I want to give a little bit of credibility here. According to a semi-historical account, when Egil's grave was exhumed, this was before the era of modern medicine. Yeah, I think we mentioned this. His part. skull was ridiculously thick and had all these weird grooves on it, yeah. which would match Paget's disease. So or at I least could. That's the report of the medieval excavation. Well, it was like the it. 1800s or something. Oh, was it? okay. It was more recent than I think. Okay. Whatever. All right. So that's what they described, and if that was accurate, which I think you're right, it might not be. That does match up. So I'm going to be credible and say I could believe that Egil's family had this. Mm -hmm. I don't buy it as an explanation for berserking across the board. Okay. And then this is my favorite and last of the physical ones. Okay. Rabies. Uh, Good old-fashioned uh, rabies. And out of the physical ones, I would actually say this is possibly the best. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, you've got the, the connection in the stories between... Berserkers and mad dogs. So if the symptoms were identical, that would make a lot of sense why they're making that connection. Mm -hmm. But moving on, you've got frothing at the mouth, rabies. Acting extremely aggressive, rabies. Uncontrollable body movements, rabies. Okay. Absolutely. So that is great. And it works as a metaphor. I mean, it's actually almost used as a metaphor for berserkers. Only problem is, if you're a human being with rabies in the era before rabies medicine, you will likely die... <laughs> Very shortly after you first start exhibiting the symptoms that would look like berserking. Yeah. Also, you can't turn that shit on and off. You cannot turn it on and off. Exactly. Yeah. And that goes to, for epilepsy as well. Yeah. It's very hard. You can just invoke it when you want to <laughs> by chewing on your shield. <laughs> yeah. You don't just raise your sword like Adam of Grayskull and be like, I have the epilepsy. Exactly. <laughs> That's not how it works. And I don't think anybody with epilepsy would appreciate that. Ex yeah. You know? they, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say, you know, one small point in these, these theories favor is that there are a couple of accounts of berserkers talking about how the rage comes on them unbidden and mm -hmm. they actually would prefer it if it wouldn't it's inconvenient sometimes mm -hmm. so it might not be fully under their control but there's a lot more accounts where they kind of bring it on when they choose to have it mm -hmm. so that's your physical explanations that is the best that 200 300 years of scholars have been able to give us on physical explanations for berserking okay i'm not too convinced yet i'm not super convinced either <laughs> so now we're going to move over to the psychological theories okay. and i will say that some of these get i think a little bit more credible Okay. Um, the first one 
is sort of psychological, sort of um, religious in nature. It's shamanism. Okay. And we talked a little bit about that, the idea that they're actually, these berserkers are invoking some kind of altered mental state, mm -hmm. something perhaps akin to an ecstatic trance that shamans go through, mm -hmm. and that that allows them to perform differently and behave differently, might even make them better warriors. Yep. That's plausible. If you take out the supernatural element and focus on it as a psychological thing attached to human belief, you can enter different mental states and you do act differently in those. So maybe. It's also something that might be the more active ingredient that could be paired with one of the others. So yes. Like set and setting is really important to a, a buzz or a high, mm. you know? So if you have the religious belief that this mushroom or this ale is going to put you into this kind of special state, yes. it might do then so. Then it could, exactly. Yeah. Like it's a combination of something else yeah. and the shamanic training right. to invoke it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. So that's, I think, actually pretty promising. Mm -hmm. I will say that there's also a big uh, exception to that, which is that the, the berserkers definitely don't count as shamans in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. They don't perform a primarily religious role or shamanic role in society. They're basically warriors. So I think when we say berserkers were shamans, there's a tendency to start thinking of them as these mystical, forest-dwelling, trance guys you go to for spiritual stuff, and also they fought people, and none of that is even remotely accurate as far as I can tell. It's not how they're depicted in sagas. Exactly. So. so the idea that they're quote-unquote shamanic techniques to invoke a different mental state, yes. Mm -hmm. The idea that they functioned as shamans for the Scandinavian society, no. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, other psychological explanations. So these, these are getting fun. Uh, next up, sociopathy. Bunch of sociopaths. Sociopaths. Yes. Okay. Or just straight up psychotic fits of some kind. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to be clear, it's not specifically like we are diagnosing berserkers with being clinical sociopaths. It's mm -hmm. more like it could have been some kind of sociopathy or psychopathy or some other kind of extreme mental disorder related to aggression. Okay. So it's a little bit fuzzy, yeah. but I mean, there are a variety of mental disorders that, that are related to aggression. Sure. And the argument goes that not only would they have had people in their society just like we have people in our society like that. Yeah, sure. But in addition, Viking society was incredibly violent. Mm -hmm. It would have prized the aggression. Mm -hmm. The number of people who maybe had that might have been higher. Yeah. Depending on if you can, like environment can influence that at a young age. And they also make the point that considering the intense amount of competition to be the most aggressive male in the warband, Viking society may have actually led to people, to men, having higher testosterone levels than they mm -hmm. would have otherwise without that context. Yeah. So then higher testosterone plus a little bit of psychopathy would make for a pretty interesting combination. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I can't rule this one out. It's, mm -hmm. it's possible. Um, on the other hand, I mean, there's some things that don't fit. It, generally speaking, the berserkers are sort of seen as like, you can count on them if they're on your side. If they're mm -hmm. part of your warband, you love having them around. If you're the king, you want to employ them. Mm -hmm. But that's not really how sociopaths work. Right. You can maybe trust them for a little while while they're lying to your face, but eventually things get worse and worse the longer you're involved with them. Right. You know. Because if I understand it, the definition of a sociopath is someone who, like, they understand emotions, but don't necessarily experience them the way that a typical person Right. Experiences yeah, them. you're on the exact right track. I'll just say for any psychologist or psychiatrist listening, yeah. I know there's sociopathy and psychopathy and that they are different. Right. And one of them is the thing you just described. They I, don't exactly have emotions, but they emulate them to trick people. Okay. And the other one is more like they can't control their emotions and they're incredibly violent. If I'm getting it right, so I'm sorry, psychiatrists. Okay. <laughs> so one of those two might yeah. have been, and either way, you they seem like they wouldn't fit in well to a social structure. Sure. Right. And in fact, I'm just going to say... Maybe uh, as CEOs only. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's true. I mean, some, you know, maybe they could. Maybe they could succeed well and become renowned warriors. I mean, I will say that the U.S. Army at one point, maybe I should say the U.S. military. I don't remember if it was the Army branch. Mm -hmm. The U.S. military at one point did a study on could sociopaths be useful as as warriors? Mm -hmm. And they had some mixed conclusions, but they pointed out that these these types of soldiers, soldiers who we suspect have this and Mm -hmm. are kind of researching... They don't really follow orders at all. They immediately disregard their commander, do their own thing, and they're notoriously unreliable, mm. even though they're very good at killing the enemy. It's a tendency. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that may or may not match with berserking, depending on how you're viewing it. Mm-hmm. You know, royal court berserker will leave the warband, maybe not. Right. The biggest badass possible who's uncontrollable in combat, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, sure. sociopathy. And the last psychological one is PTSD. Mm-hmm. Surprised okay. me when I first heard this. Um, I guess I have a, a stereotype in my head of what PTSD is like, and it's not always at all like that. Not always the flashbacks and stuff you see in the movies. Exactly. Okay. Apparently, a very common thing if a soldier today, I mean, based in current research, if a soldier has symptoms of extreme trauma or PTSD and they are still serving as a soldier, uh-huh. they will often start flipping into extreme aggressive or violent behavior. Hmm. And when they are under fire or they are engaging the enemy, they're often almost, I guess what you could say, berserk Uh about just killing the enemy as much and as fast as possible. To the point where they won't notice when people in their own unit have been shot or need help. They Uh will only be just blasting everything they got at the enemy, taking Uh out as many guys as they can. They will sometimes take actions that seem irrational, like ripping off their helmet and their flat jacket. Mm -hmm. Berserkers supposedly took off their armor. That's one theory. They don't. There's not theory. very many examples of it. Although there's exactly, lots of yeah. examples of Vikings taking off their armor right. when they go into battle to show their prowess sure. or whatever. It would explain one of the things that sometimes isn't, sometimes isn't associated with yeah. berserking. Enough said. Plus the general behavior of extreme aggression and being sort of uncontrollable. They keep going for the enemy despite the cost. They won't right. stop in battle. Yeah. And they tend to be, even after they get out of service, there's a, a rate of continuing to have violent behavior that's five times higher for these guys and women, but you know, usually guys, mm-hmm. than it is for the general civilian population. So their either experiences in that wartime situation lead to, in many cases, not all, a lifetime of risk of violent behavior. Okay. And that also kind of seems like a berserker. They make a lifestyle out of being the most violent and aggressive badass available. Mm-hmm. Right? So maybe? That seems maybe the most believable of the ones we've heard so far. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's at least possible. It's it's speculative, but it kind of matches up in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. So, I mean, some of the psychological ones, I'll give some points to them. And I will also say, and I'm going to refer probably a lot to a few different scholars in in this episode, uh-huh. one of whom we've talked about before, Rory Dale, who was kind Rory enough Dale. to send us his entire gigantic thesis on berserkers. Mm-hmm. And Dale also comes back to one other explanation time and time again, which, you know, he says it's also possible that berserking, going into, like, going into berserkgonger, the berserk state, yep was just chewing on your shield and making wolf noises. That's it. Those were not symptoms of some other state you get into. It was just the act of doing those things. That's berserk gonger. Well, those are the techniques to achieve a certain mental state. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but he, yeah, exactly. And I think the important thing is he does actually at one point go in and say, like, it seems more likely that those techniques are being used to induce some kind of altered mental state. Yeah. rather than that they were just used to kind of psych yourself up and be a little braver. So those are all kind of the explanations on the table, except for one. Okay, and that's what our focus is going to be for today? Yes. Okay. This is going to be more of a cultural explanation. Okay. 
And this is the idea that being a berserker was part of an initiatory tradition of warriors that went back to pre-Christian social structure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's what we're going to talk about. Is it raining? Is it snowing? Is a hurricane a-blowing? <laughs> Not a speck of light is showing, so the danger must be growing. Are the fires of hell a-glowing? Is the grizzly reaper mowing? So, the idea of this initiatory tradition mm -hmm. is that the sagas contain remnants of pre-Christian Scandinavian customs and rituals from at least 200 years or longer before the sagas were actually written. Sure. That's yes. the starting point. Because most of the sagas were written in the 13th century. The Viking Age ended about 1000 AD, so... Yeah. That's at least 200 years after the Viking Age ended. Exactly. Yeah. So the idea is that pre-Christian practices survived in the popular imagination or the oral stories yeah. long enough for 200, 300, 400 years later for the, the mostly Christian, I mean, for the Christian saga writers to, to write them down. Yeah. Christianization also happened right around 1000 AD on average. Obviously, large exactly. swings for different areas of yeah. Scandinavia. So the theory is they survived several centuries of Christianization. Yeah. Not that the practices all survived, but just that the stories and memories of them were intact during that time in sure. kind of popular memory. Right. Now, this theory has been around for a while. It's been around since 1910. And the idea is that even the less historical sagas, because there's a lot of like exaggeration and myth in these sagas too, that even those could contain good chunks of like pre-Christian Scandinavian belief. And this theory is still pretty widely accepted today among scholars, according to Dale. And it's um, actually been suggested that this theory is literally the only way you can make sense of a lot of the most otherwise confusing passages in the sagas. Like, if you're not assuming they refer to some earlier belief system or social practice that would make sense in a pre-Christian context, there's no way to explain some scenes. So that's kind of the, the background. And then okay. starting in 1945, a scholar named Mary Danielli identified the berserker as a key figure in an initiation role. Okay. The idea is that the berserker is the, the person who takes young men who want to become warriors or who are ready to become warriors and tests them to make them prove themselves. Okay. And again, this would have been when that tradition was intact in the Viking Age mm -hmm. and only snippets of it or echoes of it would have been written down the sagas. Sure. The pattern that this initiation follows is generally the same in a number of the actual saga stories that we have. With the young man, who we're going to just call the initiate, uh -huh. the initiate must first defeat something, either an animal, which is always a wolf or a bear, uh -huh. one of those two, or a monster. Or in some cases, they actually have to defeat a berserker, which makes the tie-in uh -huh. even stronger. Okay. Um, by monster here, I, at least in the case I'm thinking of, in the story I'm thinking of, it was what I believe are called Draugr. The undead warrior uh -huh. who lives in the tomb where he was buried. Also the same thing. Uh, it was, that was Glomer on our Christmas episode. Right. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. Yes. So you have to defeat either a bear or a wolf or some kind of monster who is probably an undead warrior mm -hmm. or a berserker. And once they've defeated this, this creature or individual... So it's like straight out of Dragonlance. It seems pretty, <laughs> like, right? How do you become a high sorcerer? <laughs> First, you must bring me the head of. Yeah. Uh, so if they've done that, then the initiate is accepted as a warrior. And that's kind of the theory. And the way it plays out in the actual saga stories is, for example, either they actually get trained as a warrior and they learn how to become a proficient warrior, or in some cases, they receive a sword, which would indicate that now they are trusted to be a warrior and part of the warband. Mm-hmm. So that's the pattern she sees 
over and over in these actual saga stories, which she's saying harkens back to an initiation practice. Okay. So I'm going to actually give you an example of one of these stories. Sure, go for it. Okay, so this story comes from chapters 6 to 8 of the Volsunga saga. Mm -hmm. Is saying it right? Uh... Wolsunga, yeah, Wolsunga. That saga, yeah, Wolsunga. At least, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's my like. I took one hour's worth of Nordic pronunciation right. kind of class, perfect, and now I'm perfect. an expert. Kind of, we yes will get now. hate mail about both yes. of our pronunciations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna call it Sega V for Wolsunga. <laughs> okay. Starts with the letter. Okay, whatever. All right. Okay, which Danielli argues shows the elements of this initiation ritual. Okay, so in this story, a character named Signy, who's a woman. Okay. is looking for someone to take revenge for the deaths of most of her family. Her father and all of her brothers except for one were all killed. Mm-hmm. So she wants someone to go get revenge for them. So she sends, she has some sons left. Mm-hmm. She has three sons. And she sends her oldest son to her remaining brother, mm-hmm. Sigmunder, to be tested. And he goes at the age of 10 years old. But the boy actually gets killed in the test. Like, that's how badass the test is. That this guy's own uncle... Kills him in the test because he can't pass it. Okay, this is just like Dragon Lance. It's very much like Dragonlance. You can also die when you test to become a high sorcerer. <laughs> All right. I think we should just claim, not right now, yeah. absolute certainty, berserkers were originally high sorcerers. That's the <laughs> No, I'm kidding. So the youngest son goes, tries the test, and dies. She sends the next youngest son, the middle son, and he also fails the test and gets killed in the process. Mm-hmm. And so finally, I mean, this, this is impressive. She's like, well, I'm burning through suns, but I'm, I'm going to keep rolling the dice on this. <laughs> She's got commitment. She's, yeah, absolutely. Revenge first, family second. She succumbed to the, uh, what's it called? The sunk cost fallacy. Which is, I'm, I'm in <laughs> I this lost far. two sons on this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can't cut now. So she sends the third son. If you know anything about fables, you can imagine the third one in the, in the series will yeah. be a little bit different. So the third and last son, his name is Sinfiatli. And he is sent to his uncle, passes the tests, and then goes on to live in the forest with his uncle, Sigmunder. The two of them put on wolfskin cloaks. Does it say how he passed the test? Um, not in this summary that okay. I have. Right. If you read it, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, the two of them put on wolfskin cloaks that turn them into wolves, and the young Sinfiotli learns the arts of war in the form of a wolf from his uncle. So they're in wolf form while he's learning to be a warrior. Within the narrative of this saga, does it make it clear that they're literally polymorphed or more that they feel wolf-like in spirit? Or That's an excellent question. And we're going to come back to examples of that a little bit later. But in this particular case, my understanding is the saga, just straight up, they turn into wolves. They become, they put on the wolf skins, become actual wolves, and then learn how to be a warrior. Okay. After, oh yeah, and at one point, um, he actually kind of ticks off his uncle, and his uncle bites him in the throat, as wolves are prone to do, almost killing him, but the uncle heals him with some magic healing herbs. So, great. Yeah. But after all that, after learning to be a, a badass warrior, then they take off the wolf skins, return to their human form, or perhaps, re- I don't know how that works, you're in wolf form, you still have the wolf skin on, I don't know, but they t- return to, to human form, and are able to go on and get revenge for the mother's family. Yeah. I suspect it's like you put on the wolf skin in order to change into a wolf. Right. And then taking it off changes you back. Into Absolutely. I just don't know how once you're in wolf form, you're yeah, still wearing it. I mean, okay, it's magic, right? Yeah. It's okay. It's, right. Okay. So a very clear pattern of this initiatory testing that turns you into a badass warrior and involves this shape-shifting element involving, in this case, wolves. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And the uh, the biting in the throat thing seems particularly thematic for a shamanic kind of ritual. It does. That kind of like destroying and reconstructing the body kind of theme that's often yes. present. It's like you have to be killed and brought back as yeah. part of the initiation. Yeah. And yeah. you're like born anew kind of. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that is that particular example. And I'm just going to run through some things that all of the other examples, because there are a, a slew of stories in mm-hmm. the sagas that fit this exact same template. Okay. They tend to have some things in common. <laughs> First of all, it is always either the oldest son in the family or the heir of the family, as in this case where the oldest son was actually dead. Oh, okay. So this seems to be the person who's expected to be the highest status or to inherit the family's stuff goes and does this. That's important. It is often stated it is, actually, it's always, whenever the time of year is mentioned, it's always winter when this happens in every one of the stories. Huh. And in some cases, it's specifically stated it happens at Yuletide. So the middle of December, midwinter. Yuletide, of course, being a major heathen festival in pre-Christian times. Exactly. Very close to Christmas time nowadays, and it corresponded with the winter solstice, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The depths of winter. And the person being tested always is described as either wearing a fur cloak or a shaggy cloak at some point. Either, either Usually they, they either are wearing it after they have succeeded the test, or they get it as part of the test. Okay. And no one else's clothing in these stories is ever described. It's not like they're just describing everyone's clothing. It just is really important for these saga to mention, oh, he was wearing a fur cloak or a shaggy cloak. Uh-huh. So some, some consistent elements here okay. across multiple stories. So we're starting to get a picture here of young men going to a berserker who has all these wolf-like associations uh-huh. being uh-huh. tested, and then if they pass and live, becoming a competent warrior. Uh-huh. Seems to be the role that berserkers played perhaps originally before, back in the Viking Age, uh-huh. right? So they're the initiators. They're the initiators, warriors. yes. As well as being badass warriors in their own right, obviously. Okay, so you still are a berserker after you go through these tests, or the tests don't necessarily right. make you a berserker, or you just make you a competent warrior? Yeah, that seems to be unclear to me, and it may just be that it's different in different stories. Um, okay. It seems to be that at least sometimes they became a berserker. Okay. And in many other cases, it's just the idea is now that you've passed the berserker's test, you are You're a real man, a, a real, real warrior. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that is the tip of the iceberg of could the berserkers have been part of some sort of initiatory cult of warriors? Okay. And we're going to get a little deeper into that now. All right. I like it. First, just the tip. Now right. we're getting deeper. <laughs> I like to ease it and slow. <laughs> 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 Wanted to be comfortable for everybody, except the wolves. <laughs> All right. So... I'm going to biting in here. Do, <laughs> that's true. You know, the neck biting, that could that could yeah. kink things up. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Jen, when I get home, Jenna's going to ask me, what did you do with Brandon? And I'm going to be really embarrassed to tell kink. her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so to flesh out some more ideas of what would this warrior cult have been like, uh-huh. I'm going to turn to some archaeological evidence. And I also want to just take a moment about the word cult. Sure. Right. So when we talk about a warrior cult, it's been pointed out by several scholars that like a lot of people use that phrase, warrior cult, mm-hmm. and it's almost never defined, mm-hmm. right? And I think what we're talking about here is a close-knit group of warriors who are a small subset of the total warriors, mm-hmm. and this one small subset has its own special practices, which are both a little bit religious and a little bit martial, mm-hmm. And they together, like those practices, make that person to be considered both better at being a warrior, like more uh-huh. badass, yeah. and also having some special social function roles to play. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm using the word or the phrase warrior cult to mean. Okay. So 
to flesh out this possible warrior cult a little bit that may have led to or been the Berserkers, mm-hmm. we're going to turn to a set of archaeological finds known as the Torslunda matrices. Which we did mention a little bit in the first episode. We did episode. mention, yeah. So those are those bronze plates that have, uh, it's like four depictions of things exactly. in, like in relief in them, right? Yes. Yeah. And these were found by archaeologists, and they're specifically, th- these bronze matrices would have been used to make bronze plates that would be decorations on people's shields. Oh, they were the molds? They were essentially, I'm not, yeah, the molds or the designs, the, the, the yeah. die used to okay. hammer them out. Okay. We'll call them molds. So uh, that's apparently what a matrix is in this case. Okay. So these four matrices or molds used to make these four images, which would have been used to make decorations for helmets that lots of people would have worn. So these are like the master copy. Uh So this set of molds has four images, and they follow the same pattern as the initiation pattern that we just saw in the stories hundreds of years later. Okay. Because these are from before the Christian saga era. This is from like, you know, early Germanic... Either Viking Age or pre-Viking Age. I don't know exactly. I think it was pre. I think it was pre as well. Like, I want to say like 600, but I'd have to go back and yeah, look it up. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So the first two plates show, respectively, a warrior defeating an animal and defeating a monster. Okay. Great. I'm not clear what kind of monster it was. It didn't, I don't have the details. Look at the pictures. Yeah, well, exactly. Actually, the yeah. pictures will be on the website. You can go to the Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. They're um, already up. So the first two plates, you're defeating... Uh, both an animal and a monster, which matches up with the stories where you're doing one or the other, or sometimes a whole slew of things uh-huh. you have to defeat. Sure. Great. The third plate shows the warrior taking his place in the line of battle. Uh-huh. Well, okay, so you've defeated the monsters, so now you can go join the warband and stand in the battle line, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's great. The fourth plate is somewhat controversial. It appears to show a warrior following a divine being of some kind. The divine being has horns, which is often used to show... Odin in Germanic context and also a variety of gods in other contexts. Okay. The divine being on close inspection also appears to have just one eye, which would also be an Odin reference. Mm-hmm. Um, the divine being could be dancing or could be leading the warrior forward into battle. It's unclear what exactly he's doing, but he's very lively. He's moving somewhere. <laughs> he's lively. <laughs> so you could either, you know, interpret this as the warrior following a divine being toward battle or the warrior doing some kind of ritual that might involve dancing or movement with the divine being mm-hmm. and the divine being may be odin and i will say because i know there's some controversy is it odin or is it not a number of scholars beck blaney and rory dale all agree that this character is is odin so okay. it seems like there's some consensus there all right and snorri sturluson also made a connection with berserks and odin as well so exactly some literary connections yes there. exactly yeah we've got we've got that snorri says they were odin's men We've got some parallels where one of the powers berserkers are sometimes said to have is they can blunt swords with their gaze. There's a poem supposedly by Odin where he's talking about himself saying he can blunt people's weapons so that they can't hurt him. So that seems like a parallel. And then Beck, one of the scholars involved, draws in a bunch of comparative evidence with other cultures to show that other cultures have a similar initiation thing that happens with a god who's similar to Odin. Okay, It's a pretty good pile of stuff here. I like how the four images are like the four Cub Scout patches that you get as you go along <laughs> exactly. and you have to earn them. You know? Exactly. Like, this is the patch I got because my teacher bit my neck. I wonder. <laughs> like, if you're like a junior warrior, like you get the first plate when you feed an animal, and like the, you get the third one when you've actually been through a real yeah. battle. Like, that's pretty cool, yeah. right? Um, yeah, they're merit badges, maybe. And, you know, Dale says, and he's, there's no proof for this, but he feels it's likely that these plates weren't just made for shield decorations for any old schmuck. That these shield decorate sorry helmet decorations would have been used specifically for the helmets of berserkers 
and Wolfegnar. Wolfegnar mm-hmm. being basically a synonym for berserkers. Yeah, meaning like wolf wolf skin. Skin. Yeah. yeah. And that's. I'm just going to say for the rest of this episode, I will be using Wolfegnar and berserker interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's often how they show up exactly. in the sagas anyway. Yeah. Those two words. And there's really only two theories: either Wolfegnar were a type of berserker, or Wolfegnar is another word for berserker. So I'm just going to use them interchangeably. Yeah. Okay. Um. So that's the Odin deal. So what is the job of a warrior cult that's dedicated to Odin? Well, the theory is that their job was two parts. First of all, to initiate the young men as warriors, as we talked about. Uh-huh. And secondly, to lead pre-battle rituals for the entire war band. Oh, that would make sense. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because that would make sense of the Hakka analogy that Rory Dale made. When we were talking about it before, it was like before an individual battle, you bite your shield, you howl like a wolf, you're psyching yourself up, right? But in the sense of like a much larger like army or battle unit, mm-hmm. and you're the one leading that and everybody's doing it all at once. That would be really powerful exactly. for morale on the battlefield. Yes. Yeah. So it seems to match up in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. it's got all these other kind of like comparative and archaeological and other kinds of evidence to tie in. Mm-hmm. It's it, Frankly, it seems pretty strong to me. Bearing in mind that they don't occupy a shamanic role for the whole society, but do seem to have this special ritual function for the warband. Right. It also, I think, and this is just my own theory, it also does help explain the two different ways they're portrayed in the sagas. First of all, as like the king's most prized warriors, and obviously respected by the whole warband, well, that makes sense if you have this special role that you play that gets everybody else fired up. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're... Wait, are they bards? They're, they're not bar- the bard. bard warriors. They're the bards that just have the inspiration for the party. Oh, that really spoils well, it. They're like shape shifting rage bards. So that's yeah, pretty ra- good. Okay, rage bards. Yeah, rage bards. I would be. I would sign up for rage bard if that was a class. Okay. Unless I'm going to die in training. At the same time, berserkers are often shown as just these bad guys who are just like basically throwaway villains. Mm-hmm. And if yep. they were warriors who had a special Odin religious connection. It would make sense that the Christian audience and Christian authors wouldn't be inclined to show them very favorably and would exactly. use them as bad guys. Yeah. So it it's a really good fit. Right. One other important quality here, which we touched on, is the animal association part, mm-hmm. where basically most of the stories in Scandinavian literature of humans transforming into wolves are connected to Ulfegnar or Berserkir. And in almost every case, an animal pelt or skin is used to do that transformation. Okay. So it basically, I mean, the shtick seems to be if you're in Viking era Scandinavia and you're talking about animal animal transformation, turning into a wolf or some kind of animal, Uh what that means to you is this person's associated with berserkers and this person will use an animal skin to do the transformation. Hmm. So that also seems to play into this cultic role. And so it implies to me that part of their ritual business Uh is that they are supposed to be able to take on the qualities of the ferocity of animals, Uh wolves and bears specifically. Okay. And... A lot of times, I guess, having killed so many wolves in D&D and also living in a world where, like, yeah, there's wolves somewhere in the world, but there's also freaking cruise missiles. I don't think a wolves is that badass. But I think you got to remember that if you're living in this era, wolves and bears are probably just about the most badass things in existence. By the way, listeners, no wolves were actually harmed in the filming of this episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nor in yeah. any of our D&D games. <laughs> well, I don't think we could have made this episode if wolves hadn't been harmed in the distant past. Well, so are we culpable, Brandon? 
I think it's, Who's to blame? It's in the same category as that weird 1956 experiment with the mushrooms, where oh, it's like God. we get the, <laughs> the benefits of the we get the benefits of the science, but we would never do it today. <laughs> Rory Dale even called out. He was like, "I am not clear on whether the prisoners volunteered or not, right. and I'm really uncomfortable with this." Yeah. So yeah. So now we've got animal-associated warriors who wear the skins of animals, oftentimes wolves, who have a special ritual role to play related to the god Odin and are the initiators of the warband and considered the warband elite. Mm -hmm. That's what we're working with. And that connects to a recurring theme of animal warriors across Europe in this time period. And this was really surprising to me. I didn't know any of these wolf traditions, really. I did not either. Yeah. Uh, I will say that this is found in Austria, England, Germany, Sweden... And large areas of the rest of Northwest Europe. Isn't even like Rome, like the whole myth of like Romulus and Remus founding yes. Rome after being raised by a wolf mother exactly. or something. There's an argument to be made out there, a strong case that this is really a recurring like Indo-European theme in general. Like find me an Indo-European culture and they're going to have a version of this wolf warrior. Mm -hmm. So it extends across a large area. It seems to always refer to an elite warrior class who wore animal skins. Berserkers, check. Mm -hmm. Strong association with a divine figure, usually a horned figure. All right, check. well, we see that with Odin, check, right? Yeah. Often depicted as having the heads of animals or being able to turn into animals, check. Uh -huh. Wolves are the predominant animal used, check. Bears are a special case in Norway, uh -huh. or in Scandinavia, I should say. They had some contact with the Sami people who mm -hmm. had a strong bear cult, so that may have been the association. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't always wolves. Sometimes in Southern Europe, it was also lions. Okay. But wolves were the most common, the central one across all of them. Yeah. So check. Eating a dog or a wolf may have been part of the initiation. And there are archaeological remains of places, not in the Scandinavian region, where this was done, where dogs were ritually sacrificed, butchered, and apparently eaten from how they were butchered in a cultural context where eating dogs would not normally be okay. Uh -huh. I don't see that with berserkers. I don't think we have references to them eating dogs. So mm. we're missing a checkbox. Okay. All right. And... Because this was an aristocratic upper class warrior class, um, it may have spread more easily across geographic lines than like a whole general culture would have, because the upper class would generally have more contact with each other. Sure. Um, so that's kind of part of why many different cultures in the area had the same kind of basic animal warrior shtick, uh -huh. even though they were very different cultures. Right. So that, all right, that's fair. They all meet in the same airport lounge. They do. <laughs> exactly. They hang out at the same, yeah. yeah. <laughs> After battle, they're all just like having a beer together. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so that's kind of the, the deal with this pan-European or pan-Indo-European uh -huh. animal warrior cult. Basically a wolf warrior cult. And that is the case for the idea that berserkers are a remnant, were a remnant, of pre-Christian cultic warriors with the power to take the form of animals and or enter a trance of animal-like ferocity and who initiated young warriors. And that that type of warrior was a common feature in a big chunk of Europe across cultural lines. Boom! <laughs> That's the theory. Okay. Now, we're going to mess it up a little bit. Oh, this is where it gets weird again. It's good, yeah. Did it start to sound probable? Maybe a little bit. It started to sound pretty good? <laughs> well, we're going to go right back into that tunnel. <laughs> the danger must be growing for the rowers keep on rowing. And they're certainly not showing any signs that they are slowing. All right. So, Brandon, let me ask you something. Yes? We got guys who turn into wolves. 
Does that remind you of anything? Princess Mononoke? Ooh. Oh, she didn't turn into a wolf. She just, she just had a wolf, wolf friend. She was like a berserker ally. Yeah. She, <laughs> I'm not a berserker myself, okay. but I'm supportive um, of berserker. Okay, so Teen Wolf. Mm, closer. Yep, closer. Uh, yeah. uh, World of Darkness, werewolves. Yes. Obviously, it seems a little similar. Wolf warriors who turn into wolves, uh-huh. werewolves, mm-hmm. right? Well, if that sounds crazy to you, it doesn't sound crazy enough for people to not believe it. Mm-hmm. So there is some people believe a connection between the original wolf warrior cults that gave birth to the berserkers mm-hmm. and many centuries later mm-hmm. the medieval christian myths about a werewolf right now I, a lot of those myths may have come originally from like baltic regions yes because uh, they're also indo-european people they right? are and that yeah. is also one of the areas that had this yeah that is believed to have had this like warrior wolf cult sure. in the slobs are indo-europeans too right, right. So, absolutely yeah. okay yeah in fact i think there's some so we're gonna just talk about what we know about werewolves for a second <laughs> what do you mean werewolf we don't know anything but they're, they're made up well let's talk about what people believed about werewolves sure. in the middle ages which is very different than like what you know from recent movies no silver bullets not necessarily the full moon thing. The medieval Christian folklore of werewolves was different in a lot of ways. So yeah, werewolves in Twilight. I keep trying to go to Twilight, and I can't. Do they sparkle too, or is it just no, the vampires? I don't know. I don't know. Everyone's like, I don't believe in vampires that sparkle. I'm going to be pro sparkle. <laughs> I feel like you can just be a vampire, however you're called to be a vampire. And ironically, that is the most controversial statement of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> the emails are pouring in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to be on this show again. So I'm going to turn to a, an absolute expert on the medieval werewolf. Okay. A gentleman who was one. Okay. We have this is a gentleman who goes by the name of Thies, maybe Thies or Thies. Uh-huh. Uh, he's from Livonia. Okay. Yep. So that's the Baltic region. Yep. Yep. And in the Middle Ages, he was... A self-proclaimed, I am a werewolf. I, I'm a werewolf. And he used the Baltic word that means werewolf, which is something like warwolf or okay. something like that. Um, I don't know if it's Baltic, like whatever the language is where he in Livonia. Right. Livonese, he used the word that's where say, I'm a werewolf. He's loud and proud. Uh-huh. That did not go over well with church authorities. <laughs> uh, he got arrested. Oh, I think this is... I got it. Yep. I know where you're going with this now. Now, he was surprised that he was arrested uh-huh. because he was very clear. He's doing this for... For good. And he's fighting Satan. Mm-hmm. So his shtick was that as a werewolf, he said he ventured into hell to do battle with the devil and his sorcerers. That was his job as a werewolf. Mm-hmm. And he was... That wasn't good enough for the Inquisition. So he was put on trial for heresy. So, um, mm-hmm. listeners, to prove you're a true fan, you get extra bonus points if you know what series we're just about to recall. Exactly. What series from our show. Exactly. Okay, go on. Yeah. Definitely a call out here. <laughs> the heresy trial did not go well for him. Now, he was not convicted just like all out of being a heretic because he was really adamant. Like, I'm fighting Satan. I uh-huh. love Christianity. Uh-huh. But they did convict him of trying to turn people away from Christianity. Supposedly because these are such like bizarre twists that it, it messes up real doctrine. Uh-huh. Um, so he was sentenced to be flogged. And then banished for life, mm-hmm. which is, I think, pretty lenient for the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Probably the best anybody ever did with the Inquisition. <laughs> well, there's a lot. No, we don't. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so I'm going to give you some excerpts from. Okay. This is not in Thies's own words. It's uh-huh. in the church record of the trial 
describing what he actually the said. The stenographer that probably wasn't very faithful to the actual words. Yeah, it's like yeah. if if you ask like the the prosecutor after the trial, so what was his story? This is how he would have recounted blow by blow. Right. So Thies said that he and the others had a wolf skin that they would put on, and he had a whole long story about how he got it. Now later on, when they kind of made more inquiries. He changed his story a little bit and asserted that they simply went off into the woods, took off their clothes, and then immediately became wolves. So may or may not have involved putting on a wolf skin, although that was his first story. Okay. Then they ran around as wolves and tore apart any horses or livestock they met. Just tore them to pieces. Not great. (laughs) He said often 20 or 30 of them would go around together and eat lots of livestock. They would have a big meal on the road. And he said they would roast it. Now, this is where the, the like, Inquisition was like, wait, what? You're a wolf. How are you roasting stuff? How are you building a fire, making spit roast? Like, what do you have? And he got clear. He's like, well, you know, we didn't do it the normal human way. We would just use whatever crude sticks were at hand uh-huh. to roast it. But we would make a fire and roast it. And they they go into kind of a back and forth. It sort of comes out that basically they didn't exactly literally take the form of wolves. Mm-hmm that they were acting with wolf-like intensity. Mm-hmm. So they would just tear the meat to pieces with their teeth and shake it while they were eating it and stuff mm-hmm. like that and kill these animals with their teeth and bare hands. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that they were in wolf form. So they were still able to do human things like carry some salt with them for the meat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, these are gourmet werewolves. Yeah, carrying it in their teeth. No, yeah, exactly. Like, ter- ter- carrying it in their teeth. Well, that's true. Walls. I guess he just says we carried salt. So I guess he could be carrying it in his teeth. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But he says, we didn't, we didn't need any knives. We tore the meat to pieces with our teeth, stuck the pieces on whatever sticks were found at hand, and just ate it. Well, when they ate it, they ate like they were people once again, except that they did not use bread. That's how ferocious they were. <laughs> and they took salt with them from the servants' quarters when they went No home. bread? Oh my god, they're really vicious. <laughs> so after a lot of consternation of like, so you're a wolf, are you not a wolf? What's the deal? It's finally like, okay, okay, whatever. Why did you do this? Uh-huh. Right? And he says, they'd be gone for weeks at a time out in the woods, but they had a goal. They would wait for the devil's sorcerers to show up at a cave. And they called the cave the Hellhole, or the entrance to hell. Uh-huh. And this is his description in the Inquisitor's words of why. They did this so that they might be able to carry what the sorcerers had brought in by way of livestock, grain, and other growing things out of the Hellhole cave. For last year, he came late along to the cave, and they did not arrive at the hellhole cave in time, so that they could not carry off the sprouts and the grain brought there by the sorcerers while the gates to hell were still open. And we had a bad year for grain. This year, however, he and the others had arrived in time and had done their duty. The witness himself had carried off as much barley, oats, and rye as he could, that's taking them from the double sorcerers, Mm -hmm. out of the hellhole cave, so that we should have plenty of all kinds of grain this year, though he says more oats than barley. So it's a cult mm-hmm. where somebody is going on this kind of spiritual journey that's vague, whether it's like literal magic, you know, right. or if it's just kind of in spirit, right? Yep. And they're protecting the crops yes. against a malevolent version of what they do. Yes. So yeah, listeners, what does that remind you of? <laughs> do we want to review it? Should we it give it now? away? I, so I think this it's just time. screams to me. Benandanti. It sounds very much like the Benandanti stories. Exactly. Yes. And I think if you haven't heard the Benandanti yeah. episodes, go back. It's a yeah. great series. That's that's the anti-witches episode. Yes. They're yeah. the good witches who fight against Satan's witches for the sake of the harvest. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. The 
The good ones, they fight with fennel stalks against witches' arms with sorghum sticks. And it's, <laughs> yes. in their minds, crucially important for the harvest. But in the minds of the Inquisitors, <laughs> who are like, digging Not the story great. out of them, yeah. they're like, what again? <laughs> you think this, why? They're like, have you ever gone to Sunday school? <laughs> Did you listen one time? Like, it's all in Latin. I, I go every week. I don't know. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After that, No Child Left Behind became a policy in the church, and they started to make some reforms. I love that he was banished for life, but I really think if they just given him, like, a six-week remedial, like, church doctrine course, he would have been cured. You know, like, <laughs> would have been fine. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, exactly right. A uh, couple more snippets here. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, the whole process of getting the grain out of the hellhole was very fraught. Okay. Basically, it seems that the devil's sorcerers were in the hellhole in a cave, uh -huh. having basically a feast. It sounds like they took a bunch of crops... And possibly also livestock, it's not always clear. Mm -hmm. And had a big feast among themselves. And if they devoured it all, then there'd be no good harvest this year. And these guys would, would venture into the cave acting like wolves. The devil sorcerers would, would beat them with sticks or whips. Um, at one point, Theus himself got his nose broken by one of these devil sorcerers. Mm -hmm. And they would just try to grab as much as they could and just run out with it. So it almost sounds like a big game of, like, dare. Like, okay, now, you're going to go in? Like, how far in the cave are you going to go? Are you going to get one little sack of barley? You're going to get a bunch of things, you know? It's like, how far in can you go? How many beatings are you going to take? And then run back out to where the other wolves are waiting, and, like, somebody else maybe goes. Or maybe they all run in at once in one big raid, right? Okay. And I almost wonder if, like, this was a pageant on both parts. Like, if some other group of peasants would play the devil sorcerers, who are not Satanists at all, uh -huh. but they know you have to play the two parts, and that right. good has to beat evil, sure. right? I don't know. Yeah. That's speculation. Mm -hmm. But he would go into the cave and get beaten and run out with as much as he could. Once they got that grain, they would go somewhere far away. They actually said they used young girls who were also honorary werewolves to, like, kind of take the grain from the, the men who were bringing it out of the cave and, like, get it far away so it's safe from the sorcerers. They hmm. used them as, like, runners. Okay. So they would go to where they had kind of taken the grain to, and they would throw the grains up in the air, and the blessing would rain down over the whole countryside and out of the air again for both rich and poor alike. Huh. So this was a benevolent, altruistic act of bringing back the bounty of the harvest for everyone equally. Uh -huh. Uses the words for both rich and poor in the Middle Ages. I don't think I've ever heard those words used in the Middle Ages. Before. Yeah, I don't know at what point Robin Hood really became a thing, but <laughs> I think it was a little bit afterward yeah. what it was supposed to be, right? So. Exactly. One other little tidbit. Uh -huh. He also says they did this three times a year. Now, the first two times varied a little bit. The first one was around Whit Sunday, which is in May. Uh -huh. He said it doesn't always fall on that day, or on that night, rather. They did it at night. Okay. It was whenever the grain was being sowed. So okay. depending on when the rains and the thaw came. Right? Okay. The second time would be around St. John's Day, which mm -hmm. is middle of June, midsummer, summer mm -hmm. solstice. Um, but again, not always on that exact day. It was whenever the grain was getting ripe in the middle of the summer. The third time, however, was in the winter. It was always exactly on St. Lucy's Eve. St. Lucy's Eve is in December, at basically the same time as Yuletide. Uh-huh. Yep. The same time that berserkers would supposedly initiate young men into being warriors. Yes. So there is your linchpin, which is already weak enough, but we'll get into that. Yeah. What do you got? Well, well, first of all, I want to uh, also just recall that there was a, a tradition depicted in the sagas of around Yuletide, berserkers might show up at a king's hall, oh. a lord's hall, to challenge somebody to a duel. That's right. Yeah, that was also a Yuletide connection with the berserkers. Nice. And that gives the hint of some kind of a test. Yes, that's true. Like they're so, coming and testing the warriors in yeah. the, oh, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. that's, a, oh, you're exactly right. Yeah. 
So that gets us where I where I wanted to go, which is like all of this is build up to somehow this wolf warrior tradition <laughs> leads us back into berserkers. That's the idea. <laughs> uh, that's exactly the idea. Now, how do we get from how do we get from ritual sacral elite warriors whose shtick was ferocity uh-huh. to peasants whose shtick was we got to throw some grain in the air to bless yeah. the crops? Or rather, how do we get from the peasants to the elite Yeah, warriors? depending on which way you're going. Yeah. So that is going to be our last piece of the puzzle. And if you're thinking it's going to get weirder, it's going to get weirder. All right. <laughs> All right. So you already might have thought to yourself, well, medieval werewolves, that's not related to berserkers. Yeah, but in for a penny, in for a pound. This is an Andre episode. <laughs> you might also be thinking, Apollo in ancient Greece, that's not related to berserkers. Well, <laughs> so here is now the I'm case, worried. and this is going to bring it all together, and we can just all gawk at the weirdness here. Okay, okay. Here is the case for a connection between Apollo, ancient cultic animal warriors, Viking berserkers, and medieval werewolves. Okay, this does feel like a Xena episode right now. It's really getting there, <laughs> yes. So, everything I'm about to say, as far as I can tell, comes from one source, which uh-huh. is already putting off alarm bells for me. It's a book called Apollo the Wolf God by Daniel Gershenson. Now, it's respectable enough when it was published in 1991. Mm -hmm. It's actually released by the Journal of Indo-European Studies. Mm -hmm. All right, great. And it's a dense scholarly book that puts as much research and evidence behind everything it says as possible. So, all right. I still, I'm suspicious. But here's the idea. Casual myth lovers might think of the god Apollo as the god of the sun. And if you know a little bit more about Greek myth, you probably know that that's only part of what he is. And he also is associated with the Oracle of Delphi and had all sorts of associations with music and the arts and healing. And in fact, he was the conductor of the Chorus of Muses. He's actually more associated with disease and healing. Exactly. There's a whole disease. Yes, you're right. Because he was originally possibly influenced by a... An Anatolian plague yeah. god, and then if you bring plague, you can heal plague. So, so. point being, he's got a, a wide spectrum. A big, exactly. Association. Yes. Okay. But what I really didn't know that much, even as someone who loves myth, was he's also got a whole wolf connection going on. I've never heard this I before. didn't know that. Apparently his, his temple in a variety of cities had a gigantic wolf statue right next to the statue of Apollo himself. Okay. Aristotle called his school for philosophers the Lycaeum which is basically like Wolf Place because it was right next to the Temple of Apollo. And I could go on, but the bottom line is there's a lot of consistent wolf connections. Actually, I'll add one other fun one in there. Apparently there was an entire wolf cult that Uh was probably from the era before Apollo's worship. And they were known for like a big holiday and the whole dressing as wolves and fire walking, which was a berserker thing. Yeah, the mastery over fire. Right. And that whole wolf cult was just directly absorbed into Apollo's cult later. So that, like, that holiday and those traditions were just taken over by Apollo's, like, clergy, basically. Okay. So there's a bunch of wolf connections. Great. And now we're just, I'm just going to give you the rabbit hole (laughs) in the order it comes. (laughs) We're not already in it. So wolves live in caves. Okay. Maybe. I don't even know if that's true, but at least in the popular imagination of the ancient past, they lived in caves. Okay. For all I know, they live in a pile of sticks they put together or whatever. Wolves live in caves. Uh-huh. If you ever spend time near a cave, you'll notice the sensation of wind blowing out of it, which okay. is because there's a pressure differential between the underground and the above ground, but you'll usually feel a breeze near the opening of any deep cave. Okay. And of course, these caves were also considered to be the entrance to the underworld if mm-hmm. they were deep caves. Okay. So now we've got the idea that the winds come out of, like where, where does wind come from? It comes from the underworld via caves, 
and wolves live in the place that is kind of the door between those two things. Okay. So now we've got wolves as like kind of guardians to the underworld and associated with bringing the winds. Now, what do we want winds for? Well, when the winds would strike up in the late spring and early summer, that would bring the rains, uh-huh. which was essential for crops. If you didn't get good winds with good rains, you would not get a good harvest. Okay. And so now we've got the whole thing where like wolves and caves in the underworld give you winds, which gives you rain, which gives you a good harvest. Uh-huh. And who's the god of wolves? Apollo. So who's the god of the harvest? Partly Apollo and partly a bunch of other gods who are associated with fertility and other stuff, but we won't get into that right now. Uh-huh. So you've got this whole shtick that the wolf god is going to also be a harvest god and a god of wind in general. And always associated with these wolf gods, according to this book, Apollo the Wolf God, Mm -hmm. was associated with Apollo and associated with similar wolf gods in other related cultures, Uh was the idea of a sort of frenzy. And Mm -hmm. this frenzy was used for two things or did two functions. One was the frenzy of inspiration for poets. And the other one was the frenzy of battle becoming into a battle trance and being an extra ferocious wolf-like warrior. And even the word for this kind of frenzy in ancient Greek is like basically, it basically translates as like wolfish rage or wolfish ferocity. And obviously Apollo was the god of poetic inspiration. So he's got that side of the rage. Another kind of going back to the whole wolf complex thing. Uh (sighs) So (laughs) this book then takes that body of evidence Uh and starts looking comparatively at other stories across related cultures, again, Indo-European cultures, and again, mostly Europe, mm-hmm. a lot of the same areas that these ancient shape-shifting warrior cults were in. Uh-huh. And it basically makes the case that a lot of stories you might not think of as related, for example, even the story of the three little pigs, uh-huh. why is a wolf able to huff so hard it can blow houses down? Because wolves and the wolf god bring the wind. Duh. <laughs> right? Okay. So um, it finds all these reflexes of this hmm. story with different variants and twists across Europe, and basically leads to the idea that among the many other wolf functions that Apollo and similar wolf gods performed, including the harvest, they also would have been the god who was sort of the patron deity of these sort of pan-European wolf warrior cults. Okay. And Apollo, in the Greek case, he would get over to the Germanic stuff and it would be Odin. Uh And if you got over to the Celtic stuff, it would be Lu or Lugus or Hloi, depending on which version of Celtic culture you're talking about, who also has some wolf associations and a lot of harvest associations. So did the Greeks have a wolf warrior tradition Supposedly, by yeah. Apollo? This guy says yes. Okay. And that the Romans, I believe, did too. And I want to be really clear, because I'm going to be very judgy about this book, and uh-huh. it may or may not be fair. I actually haven't been able to get a hold of this book, so I've not read the book. Oh, I'm God. recounting the arguments based on a summary. Okay. For all I know, if you looked at the citations, you'd be like, wow, this is so well put together. He's exactly right. Uh-huh. Or you might look at it and be like, Yeah, he's got (laughs) citations, but this is hogwash. I I don't know. Yeah. What I can tell you is that this is one book. Uh It's from 1991. It seems to have been treated respectably at the time. So they had the influence of Nirvana by then. Definitely. So that lends some credit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like at the time it was released, it seemed to have been considered respectable. And I have not found any other books that have been released on this topic since. Uh I haven't been able to, in my, you know, layman's research, even find a good scholarly review of the book that might say whether they think it's good or bad. Right. So take it for what it's worth, which I'm going to say, well, I'll, you know, I'll finish out the case. Uh-huh. If you've got a situation where in the ancient world, mm-hmm. wolves were already, or wolf gods, were already sort of the milieu uh-huh. of shape-shifting and these initiatory warriors, and also already the milieu of making sure people have a good harvest, bringing that every single year, 
then it makes more sense that while the overtly pagan, ferocious ritual war bands would die out, as the beliefs went on, there would still be an expectation among the peasants that if somebody wolf-like doesn't do something, uh-huh. we're going to get a bad harvest. Uh-huh. And the idea of you can put on a wolf skin and become a wolf could have trickled down to this weird medieval werewolf legend. Sure. That's the case that some people will make. And I can't say it's wrong. I mean, there's there's a thread of believability there. Uh-huh. It could very well be the case. Uh-huh. I, at the same time, I want to point out that if you start to read a good summary of this research, yeah. it is not just the collection of associations I gave you. It is such a wide net. <laughs> not only do we have disease and plague and poetry and literally every other art and warfare and firewalking and shape-shifting uh-huh. and the winds and the underworld and souls going to and from the underworld and the winds, the good winds, the bad winds, <laughs> destructive winds, rains. <laughs> now you got thunder because rain is associated with thunder, so lightning is the weapon of these wolf gods. Oh, my God. And, and it's going to be the harvest and the bounty, and if it doesn't do this ritual thing, you won't get the bounty. It's always opposed by some negative supernatural force who's trying uh-huh. to take the bounty away. And did you know it's not just wolves, it's also connected with dolphins and also with mice. And I'm like, <laughs> no! <laughs> this author's got like a wall with all these newspaper clippings and like strings yes! going from one to the other. You know. <laughs> exactly. Okay, that's fine. But it makes for a really fun thing to think about, right. for sure. That could have some kernel of truth to it, right? The more interesting thing to me mm-hmm. is like, what the hell were all these wolf warrior traditions from Indo-European cultures that I've never heard about? Right. Do you have any examples that you could share or... So I don't have a ton. Okay. Um, obviously, the Berserker is one proposed case. Uh-huh. Um, I know that if you go into Eastern Europe and even up into like Russia, there's archaeological finds of initiatory sites where wolves were eaten. Okay. I know because I know the, the various Celtic traditions, especially the Irish traditions, better than I know mm-hmm. most European myth. And there is definitely some very strong wolf associations with the Finna, the kind of like special elusive warriors of medieval and ancient Ireland. Uh And they had a similar thing going on with the berserkers. They weren't necessarily known for a special battle transfer frenzy, Mm -hmm. but they had a whole initiation process and they were sort of like a special warband under themselves. They also had the reputation of being both the king's most trusted Mm warband and also being just straight up like brigands and raiders. Okay. So... I, I'm aware of some examples, and I'm sure that if we delved into all of the literature on this, they'd have other examples. Yeah. I and can... also, I think the other thing is it's oftentimes that the word for battle frenzy is a word related to wolf in many, or if not all, of these cultures. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the pieces, piece of evidence as well. Okay. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. I'm, you know, you can t- you tell me. This is my take on this. Uh-huh. I'm going to say, was there a pre-Christian tradition of a certain group of warriors, a certain elite group of warriors who would initiate under Odin in the Germanic cases and possibly similar gods in other cases, uh-huh. would that group of warriors then play a ritual role in the warband? And would that group of warriors, according to legend among their own people, have the power to shapeshift into wolves? I would say I would, yes. I mean, if I had to choose one or the other, the evidence is not 100%. Based on everything I've read, I'd say... That seems probable. That seems okay. at least believable. Uh-huh. And I would say the evidence leans toward yes. Okay. Were they associated with the harvest and bringing back bounty for everyone? And did they have a connection to later werewolf beliefs? Uh-huh. I can't say no, mm-hmm. but I would say, Psh, who knows? Right. There's a lot of wolf stories out there. Wolves uh-huh. are pretty iconic. Uh-huh. So that's my take. Well, I don't, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I, 
I, I agree that it's easy to see anything wolf-like as being contributing to this tradition. But like the first Indo-European example that leaps to mind for me is like you see often Roman legionaries with like a wolf cap or cloak that they're wearing. They're often right. the ones carrying like the standard or whatever, but they never seem to be a specific kind of warrior. It's just that maybe that was just a symbol that reminded them of the myth of the founding of Rome. And so they yeah. used wolves because... Because, yeah, because wolves are a badass thing to use in any time that you want to, you know. Right. So, uh, I don't know. It It is, it's fun to think about, I think, is the best <laughs> that, I, that's the best that I can describe. Right. For, for the wide net yeah. theory here. But, yeah, the, the part about the Odinic initiations may be more likely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, that seems and, to ring solid yeah, to me. And possible connections to animal totem-like traditions not that hard to imagine, right. I don't think. And I would actually say the animal shape-shifting connection is probably even stronger evidence for berserkers than the cultic initiation part. Yeah, because it's not mentioned... It's, I think it's only mentioned once in actual, like, written literature. And that's the Snorri Sturluson, I think. The shape-shifting? No, no, no. The, the Odinic. Oh, the Odinic, yes, exactly. Yeah, that, yeah. that the berserkers are Odin's men is only mentioned that right. one time. Because the shape-shifting part's all over, but you're right. For the initiation, you have to do this whole, like, well, let's look at how the story is mirror these practices right. and everything yeah. we went through. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. Wow, that was quite a, uh, a ride through the tunnel. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and now we all get to eat chocolate or everlasting gobstoppers. Everlasting gobstoppers. I would definitely yep. choose that. Yep. Yeah. That, that, that's what the real Viking warriors are doing in Valhalla. <laughs> yeah, like being served gobstoppers by Valkyries. They fight all day, and then they get to have <laughs> their candy. Fight all day, gobstop all night. <laughs> gobstop all night. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, I think that's the secret. Yeah. It's not alcohol, it's not mushrooms. Oh, yeah. That's, it's gobstoppers. Yeah, it's gobstoppers. Straight up sugar, man. <laughs> <laughs> You'll go berserk, too. Yeah. <laughs> just, just take a few pixie sticks before a battle. See what it does for you. Did you know that pixie sticks are related to werewolves, which are related to <laughs> right. dragons, which are related well, to the stick moon? stick-like, so anything stick-like. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, is that it? You got anything else? That's it! All right. We're there. We did it. We figured out berserkers. <laughs> What's coming up next time, Brandon? Well, thank you for that, first yes. of all. Okay, so, yes, thank you for asking, because we have something very special coming up next time, which is we have an interview with a fantastic podcast host. He is the host of the Viking Age podcast. His name is Lee Akamando, and he is going to talk to us about why did the Vikings go Viking in the first place? Ooh. Which we've been mostly focusing on the late Viking Age, because that's where a lot of our berserk sources come from. But we're going to tap back to the early Viking Age and be like, what the hell happened in Scandinavia that made this all get started in the first place? So nice. that's going to be a really interesting one. Oh, man. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Andre. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, listeners, remember, if you like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon or Remember, there is also a special promo going on right now. The first 20 people to review us on Stitcher, get their portrait drawn, the time period and the culture of your choosing. I will draw you as like a wolf. Uh, I'm can can you draw them as literally shape-shifting into a wolf, but also simply being a person wearing uh, werewolf skin at the same time? I'm going to draw you as a wolf taking off its own skin to transform yes. back into a human. And I'm going to somehow visually make that work. With barley sense. just raining down. With barley raining down. Yeah. Mission accomplished. <laughs> All right. That's what we got for today, everybody. Come back next time. Uh, I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Oh, make it stop, Daddy! Walker, does he go far enough?
Quite right, sir. Stop the boat. We're there.